Audi. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to the big travel podcast exploring life stories through travel. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. If you found us after our appearance this week on BBC Radio 4 Extra's podcast radio hour, welcome to the party or uh, maybe journey would be more appropriate. We've been called the UK's best travel interview podcast, frequently charting high in things like iTunes UK places and travel charts and also with a lot of listeners around the world as well. 95 countries so far and counting and every week I work really hard to get the best and most interesting guests for you. We have politicians, Paralympians, philanthropists, famous faces from TV, radio, music, books, journalism, sports, stage and screen. We've had SAS soldiers, adventurers and ordinary people taking extraordinary journeys and all telling their stories of life through travel with a new episode every Tuesday. Now today's guest has a fascinating story to tell and is with us now. The son of political refugees, our guest this episode was brought up in exile in Kenya, Somalia, Swaziland, Thailand, Bangladesh, Austria and Switzerland, following his UN diplomat father. Returning to Malawi was a culture shock, as were sexually liberated comedians once he moved to Canada. He became known and loved by UK audiences when he came third on Britain's Got Talent and says Simon Cowell is actually a really nice guy. Here on The Big Travel Podcast, we are delighted to welcome the brilliant Daliso Chaponda. I've been on the move since birth. So I'm like an unofficial nomad. Uh, when I was born, my dad was a refugee. And then he ended up working for the UN. So up till 18, we were never in the same country for more than two years. And then after I went out on my own, I ended up becoming a comedian, which led to me traveling now for a totally different reason. So yeah. you're from Malawi? Yes. Well, I'm from Malawi. I wasn't born there because we were in exile. And so I was born in Zambia and ran around Africa, you know, Kenya, Somalia, all sorts when I was growing up. Yeah. So tell me about the your parents being in exile. Well, what's an interesting thing is when you're an exile baby, you grow up with hearing about your homeland almost like Narnia or something because it's just this story which you hear they long fondly of it but then also at the same time they confuse you because sometimes they tell you how hard it was there and you used to walk 10 miles to get water and you're like it's this lovely place with this horrible place so I heard all these stories and when I finally went there I was on 11 or 12 it was weird because even though it was home I didn't fit in because, you know, my accent was wrong, my values were wrong. I had a Malawian name, but I didn't see Malawian. 
now I feel comfortable in Malawi, but it took me a while because at first it was jarring because it didn't match up with all the stories you heard. Did it match up to your parents' expectations? Because they'd sort of built it up as this sort of incredible homeland that they'd have to leave. But of course, it's a place like any... Because, I mean, they were there for, what, 40 years. And then they went to, went to traveling and so on and so forth. But for me, it was literally... It just didn't match with what I'd heard. And also, I'd grown up in... I'm Malawi, I, it's not to say that it's backward, but I'd been in places that... Uh, for example, I'll give you a perfect example. Like I've, I've been living in places where there's like equal rights for different sexes and stuff. And then I go to my homeland and they lock up gay people. So there are things where it was very jarring for me that this place that's my own, I don't agree with a lot of their values. You know, there was no freedom of speech if you criticize the government and stuff like that. It's moved forward since, but especially when I first went back, it definitely, I, I was home and I was like, hey, I'd rather be in one of these other places. I'll come back to that because yeah. it's uh, fast forwarding a little bit, but I know yeah. you almost got arrested, didn't you? Oh, yes, yes. But what was it like for your parents as refugees? Were they were they in accommodation? Did they have money? Well, what was interesting, because they were economic refugees and also my father was political and you couldn't criticise the government. But at the same time, they were both university graduates so they left and they weren't in their homeland, but they were working well. So so my father was a, a teacher at one point. My mother's a doctor. So they were just not home, but it wasn't like they were in a refugee camp. They were just, you know, working. And then my father ended up joining the UN and working for the UNHCR. So we, uh, when I was growing up, the first few years were struggle. But then from when I can remember, from around four or five, we were living very well and doing well. So it was more, it wasn't like physical struggle. It was more mental struggle of not being able to see your parents and they're old and you're worrying about them and not being able to speak in your own language to people. So it was that was the sort of thing which was frustrating them. But no, we were we were living for, very well. Remind me what was going on in Malawi. So, yes, so there was a our president, Kamuzu Banda, was what they called a benevolent dictator. So he wasn't as bad as, like, you know, the Idi Amin's and the Gaddafi's. But at the same time, it was a repressive regime. You couldn't criticize the government. You couldn't be political. There were, there were all sorts of things that happened. Uh, things like, I, I have a memory of when I was, when we finally went back, he was still in power. And it was things like my mother told me that, oh, you mustn't discuss the government on the phone because sometimes they're listening on us. Because when we went back, my dad was still this person who'd had this cloud of suspicion over him and you know so little weird things also like once my we were going to international school where we used to write amnesty international letters and my brother had an amnesty international badge on and when we came off at the airport and my mother saw the badge she snatched the amnesty international badge because you could get in trouble for wearing it because they were one of the people who would send loads of letters to malawi when they locked someone up so it was lots of things which as a kid you don't really fully understand but it was later as I think back there are loads of little things where I was like okay it wasn't a perfect society at all. You traveled as refugees as as refugees in a great position. Well more my brothers because I was literally a baby when we were refugees and by the time I was five my dad was now working for the UN so I'm the one brother who who had the who coasted 
I was born and grew up in good times, while my brothers have stories of the harder times. Do they good-naturedly maybe, but resent you for it in a way? They don't resent me, but they say, oh, you, you were born when life was good. How <laughs> many brothers have you got? I've got three brothers. So four, four boys all together? Yes. Any girls yes, at all? Yes, yes. I've got two half-sisters as well. Wow. So, so it's, a, it's a very big family. These different countries that you did live in, yes. where did you go? Kenya, Somalia, Swaziland, then outside Africa, I was in places like Thailand, Austria, Switzerland. It was a lot of places. I think the places I remember most fondly was uh, Swaziland because uh, Swaziland was where I went to high school. So as much as we were moving from place to place, I went there to boarding school. So I really got to know there. And then also I loved Thailand. Thailand was the first magic place where I ever went where it was... The I don't even know how, how to describe it. It was, they were very excited. There weren't a lot of black people. And I was this little cute 10 year old. And so they would come and they would ask you if they could touch your hair. And we'd walk through the market and everyone would give me free stuff. And it was just, it was just this lovely, magical place. That touching hair thing has become something that you really don't do to people, but it comes from a place of innocence. Yes, it does. For many yes, it people. Does. Yes, and I think it's different because I was a kid. I don't recall them asking like my brothers who were like, you know, 17, 18, <laughs> if they could touch their hair. But I was like a little 10 year old. So it was like, oh, let's touch your hair. Because they'd not seen this kind of curly hair. But yes, yes. But I think a lot of things come from a place of innocence. A lot of, I think there's a difference, for example, between racism and ignorance. So I have a lot of times where people say something which is offensive. And I always have to take a moment to think, is there malice or do they just not know it's okay to say that? And when you travel a lot, you come across that a lot. I remember performing in Australia and having somebody say the N-word, but they were saying, oh, I love N-word humor. And I was like, this person clearly loves me. So it's not malice. It's just ignorance about what you can and can say. And so I think I've gradually learned that in any situation, not just take it at face value and try to figure out why people are saying what they're saying. And I even remember one which was a little bit more offensive where in Singapore, I was window shopping in a bookstore, right? And this helpful guard came and talked to me and said, oh, it's great here in Singapore. You can you can stay in bookstores as much as you like. You can read the books, but don't take any of them. <laughs> and I was just like, this guy just thought I must be about to rob the place, but he's trying to help me to let me know. And he's like, oh, you know, if you take them here, an alarm will go because there's a little chip. So one, he thought he was helping. Two, he thought I didn't know there were chips inside. It was just so, on so many levels, it was just absurd. Did you grab a pile of books and run out? I'd I should have, I should have. So describe to me a magical memory from your time in Thailand. I recall, okay, there was this uh, place called the Ambassador Hotel. And at the bottom, it's so funny because it's something so normal now, but there was a food court right and when you went to the food court it was little stalls with food from every different country and you'd get ambassador money so they would give you fake money and you could go to any of the stalls and i just remember being blown away because my culinary experience at that point was very simple you know used to i used to just eat like the same stuff all the time and suddenly we're at this place where they were giving us soup with sponges in it and there was different colors and oh I loved that place and wanted to go there every day. My first ever really foreign experience apart from Europe was to Thailand as well and I just remember within about 
half an hour of getting to my hotel, I was in a tuk-tuk. There was an elephant on the street. Oh, Someone yes. was giving me a coconut oh, to drink out the of. Tuk -tuks the tuk-tuks were amazing. The sights and the smells everything, and the sounds. Every, and it also is just so alive. The other thing I remember is they used to bootleg everything, right? And so suddenly we became the cool kids at school because we'd come ho come back with like the new MC Hammer cassette <laughs> and the new everything cassette, bootlegs, of course, but we had everything. It was great. <laughs> so when you when you say you came back, where were you going? Back oh yes, to? I was going back to Swaziland, where I was at boarding school. So I'd go visit my dad in Thailand for maybe a month, then go back to school. Then I'd go visit him in Bangladesh or wherever he'd been posted, and then go back. So there there was a measure of stability, which was the boarding school. It sounds like a great upbringing. What was boarding school like in Swaziland? I nothing, know nothing about Swaziland. I've never been. I don't think I've ever even read much about it. It's a very peaceful place. It's got a king with like a legion of wives and a very old school. It's still got polygamy and things like that. But it was a lovely experience. Now, the thing is, we lived... If you go to a boarding school when you're really young, like 11, 12, you really don't know the country. You know the boarding school because they're not going to let you go walk about. So it's this amazing school. It's called Waterford Club. It's like a United World College. So the students are from all around the world. And it's it was started as a protest school against apartheid. So as much as we were learning school, we were also, you had to, we protested, you had to do creative service, you had to do community service, you had to do all sorts of things. So it was a very interesting kind of experimental school. I am really glad I went there because it, it chained me dramatically. That's going to, it sounds like an incredible school and it, it's going to churn out people with strong yes. political beliefs. So many of us are either working for, you know, non-governmental organizations, a lot of friends I know, and, like, and even in me, an entertainer, but the subject matter which I, I tackle is definitely influenced by uh, the school which I went to. So how do you end up as a comedian, son of a Malawian, uh, what would you call him, a politician? Well, he's a lawyer and he went from being a diplomat to being a politician. So Diplomat is probably, the word yes. diplomat sort diplomat. of sum, sums, sums up it your, all up. yes, sums it does, it all and sums up, up yes. that sort of quite well-to-do life of yes. travel. Yes, So how did, how did the comedy come about? Early on, I discovered that I loved to create, I loved to write fiction. And from the age 11 onwards, I was writing short stories and poems and all sorts of things like that. And I wanted to be a writer. And then I ended up going to university bullied by my family. I went to study computer programming because I was good at math and physics, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to write. That was in Canada, was it? Yes. So on my off time from school, I always used to go to places where I could indulge in like a little bit of creativity so I used to go to open mics and then one of them happened to be a comedy open mic where I went to read a funny poem and then I saw people doing stand-up and I'd never actually seen stand-up and known it was stand-up I'd seen Eddie Murphy's Raw but I didn't know it was stand-up I just knew him oh the guy from coming to America is being funny for an hour so it blew my mind that people could just talk. They could talk about stuff you don't talk about. There was a guy talking about sex. There was a guy, and it was just, you know, and I'd been, even though I'd traveled, most of the places I'd gone to happened to have been very conservative. So it was, I was suddenly in Canada where, oh, they're talking about drugs on stage and they're talking about sex on stage and people are laughing and it's okay. And I decided I had to try it. And the next week I tried it. And it was the best experience of my life. And I was an addict within five minutes of stage because uh, I'd never felt so alive. It was absolutely amazing. Describe to me those first moments on stage. 
Well, I did really well. But part of it is I only realized this in hindsight. At the time, I thought I was a genius. But I got everybody in my university residence to come to the show. So the entire audience was there for me. So I did absolutely amazingly, but it was because they were all on my side. And it was only maybe my fourth gig where I performed for people who didn't all love me. And I had an awakening that, oh, maybe I'm not so funny. But by then I'd, I'd, already, I'd already got the bug. And that confidence that comes yes. from having that response. That exactly. is very clever. But also you have to have a certain amount of pull to be able to persuade all those people to come in the first yes. place. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, I was a very social uh, animal and I essentially went from door to door. And also, you know, first year university, people are very persuadable. Hey, I'm in a comedy show. Come look. People are like, oh, OK, yeah, let's see what's going on. Did you have your own coming to America moment? Because you'd traveled up until that point in lots of African countries and yes. Southeast Asian countries. Yeah. When you went to live in Canada, what was that like? Not a big shock. The only shock was the weather, the cold. That was the only shock. I, I think because of all the traveling, I became immune to actual culture shock because every place I went to was totally different. But the one thing I had never experienced when I went to... I, oh, I guess, no, no, I'm, I'm wrong. The sexual liberation there was shocking to me because again it's like amsterdam you know what i mean it's like they talk about stuff no one else talks about they have like prostitution and so on and i was like little kid who wanted to be a reverend at one point and i was so shocked by this and then the other thing is like negative 20 degrees it was so cold if it had been that cold when i arrived i would have said i want to leave but they bring on the winter around six months in do you think they do that on purpose i think they do i think you'd have droves of foreign students transferring to other universities because it was beyond absurd i i remember walking from the university residence to the metro and there were icicles in my beard by the time that I'd reached there. It was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. The comedy took off. You obviously started to do very well. Then you end up, I don't know what the link is between those two things. I know the link. I don't know what yes. the timeline is between these things. You end up last year on Britain's Got Talent in yes. the UK and coming third. What had led you to become to, to that point? Being a comedian in Canada, I was an amateur. And I had to leave Canada because my visa was up just as I'd started to get good. And I got really frustrated. I was in Malawi with no comedy for around a year, really missing being a comedian. And then because I have a brother who lives in the UK, I came and stayed with him for two weeks, found an agent in those two weeks, and then moved to the UK. And I became a circuit comedian. And I was doing well as a circuit comedian after a few years, but I was like a hamster on the wheel. I could never get to this next level, which gives you television, which gives you radio. And so I got frustrated because I always did well. But for one reason or other, I never used to get producers like approval when I auditioned stuff. And I was like, I want to go for something where the public votes. And if the producers don't want me, they tell me to to my face because there's something lovely about being told, even if it's something mean. But if someone tells them to your face, I don't think you're funny. That's better than <laughs> vaguely knowing, oh, they didn't pick me. Why? Is it because of I'm the wrong look? I'm not funny. I'm the wrong race. You don't know the reason. And I loved the fact that the Prince Got Talent would tell me why. But I didn't expect to do as well as I did. That was the shock. I thought, oh, I'm at least funny enough to get through and I'll get a nice video clip. And then I got the golden buzzer and it's totally changed my life. It's been absolutely crazy 
whirlwind of a ride since. There you are standing in front of Simon Cowell. Yes. Amanda Holden. Yeah. Who else was it at that time? Um, Who else is it? Alicia. Alicia, Alicia Dixon. Uh, yes, and David Williams. And David Williams. Wow. I mean, David Williams particularly is one of the funniest men alive. Exactly. Simon Cowell is one of the scariest men to stand <laughs> up and perform in yes. front of. How, how was it? I'll tell you the interesting thing. I was not terrified at all. I think it's because... This is what happened. I had watched so many videos of people on Bridges Got Talent that when I walked on, I was just delighted I was in it. It was like I was in the TV screen. <laughs> and so I was grinning. I didn't even know I was grinning. And and I remember the first thing Simon Cowell said was like, you look happy. And I was like, yeah, I, I, I just couldn't believe what was going on. So the whole thing was just me at play because I was so delighted and there was no fear involved. What was Simon like? What is Simon like? Simon was always lovely to me, but it's because he liked me. Do you know what I mean? So he's very encouraging. I've only seen him like once or twice since the show and he's given me good advice. And that's just great. I'm part of the family now. It's lovely. I've interviewed Ian Royce, who's the warm-up comedian. Oh, often. yes. Yeah, yes, Royce, yes. yeah, he's been on here before. That he was what's interesting, too, is that when I arrived, I saw the warm-up comedian and I was like, oh, that's my job. Because <laughs> usually when I was at TV things, I would never be on screen. I would be doing the warm-up. So it was very interesting to see... The, the him and be like oh I the, I know that job that's usually me to have those roles reversed I yeah. tell you what Royce should actually I'll, I'll speak to him maybe he should actually go on the show next time he should he should he <laughs> should very funny man but your material and your yes. material in Britain's Got Talent is very much you use your African roots and one of the funny things you said from at that first audition is that you know you came to Britain and everyone's moaning about poverty and austerity yes. and actually you know where's Bono where's UNICEF this is not poverty and there's a lot of truth in that you know we yeah. we think we're struggling but we've got you know at the very basics we've got hot and cold running water we've got taps we've got bathrooms we've got it's not that people don't suffer because there are some people of course there are people who suffer in the UK in Malawi people are suffering but nobody is going to complain about it it's just like in fact you almost do the opposite you pretend every things okay you're <laughs> just like ah you know life is hard but here was one of the places i came to where people would go on and on about even small problems and i just didn't understand it and that's where that joke came out of those cultural differences are, are quite jarring sometimes i remember long ago i don't know if you read this book but a book by zadie smith called white teeth oh no i've not i've not read it yes um, i'm aware of it but i've not read it she one of the interesting things she's, she's it's a fictional book but about people moving from i think bangladesh or somewhere in asia to the east end of london and one of the observations was she didn't understand why in england poor people were fat and in Bangladesh, poor people were thin. She didn't understand the it's correlation between food. It is it's a very good well, point. Well, you know, there's, there's many. Yes. Well, cheap it's food a huge is. Yes, yes. No, no, no. But, but I could see how you would see that as I an outsider and be confused. Yes. So what other cultural observations? I mean, obviously, you're a very acclaimed traveller. But what yes. other cultural observations did you have about us British? Because I'm a comedian, I found, immediately came across the difference in humour. Because... I found very quickly that the British like humor with a little bit more bite. You know, sarcasm, for example, is considered impolite in other countries. Well, here it's just how people go. People mock their friends all the time. You're taking the piss. So it's like this kind of, this is very British. It's like, again, most places you're supportive of your friends and you mock other people. But here you insult your friends. <laughs> and then that goes on forward to even the stand-up comedy is a little bit darker. 
there are a lot of comedians who thrive in the UK. You know, somebody like Jimmy Carr or, or, or Frankie Boyle, where it's their, their wit is a very dark wit. While if you go to somewhere like Canada and you see the people who they love, it's a, a very happy, positive kind of humor. Not that they're, I mean, they're people who do that humor here too, like Michael McIntyre, but I'm just saying that there's definitely a place in the UK and appreciation of the dark humor. Which do you prefer? I, I know I'm actually Mr. Positive, happy-go-lucky guy, but occasionally I will delve into something a little darker. The but dark side, overall, the British dark side. Yes, but overall, <laughs> I think I'm a more optimistic uh, a comedian. So where else have you been? What other travel stories do you have for me? Um, okay, where have I been? Oh, I'll tell you where I went recently. I went to Rwanda recently, right, to do a Rwanda comedy festival. And it was fascinating because, yes, Rwanda had, uh, you know, a decade ago, it had a horrible genocide, but they've bounced back really quickly, actually. And they do some things which are fascinating. The last Saturday of every month, they have an event called Umuganda, which is everybody cleaned the streets. Amazing Everybody idea. cleaned the streets. The idea is it's like a community building thing, especially after what they've been through. If you don't clean the streets, you have to pay a fine. And it's amazing. You just see people cleaning the streets. If you're in an area where there's need, maybe you'll build, you'll build a well together. And it was just one of the most amazing things. Like, and I was like, every place should do this. I don't know if, if, if you could even pull it off in the UK. People will say, hey, I'm not cleaning the streets. I've got but, a great idea for a TV show. You will speak to the BBC or yes. someone, ITV, and propose a TV show that you are the leader of this and you get everyone in Britain cleaning their streets. So is it on the third Friday of the oh, month? Last the Saturday last, of the month. The last Saturday of the month. I think it's an amazing idea. I think it's amazing. It would be great. I can only imagine the abuse would be hurled at you at trying to make British people do it. But I thought it was an absolutely amazing thing let's let's do it i'm i'm all for that you know we moan we do we moan about rubbish and things but then often people don't do anything about it i think exactly. more and more people are starting to like pick out the plastic from the yes. sea when they see yes. it rather than just moan about it it's like right i'm gonna also take people home. have allotments and people try to uh you know have composting so stuff happens but that was one of the first times I saw an entire community get on board something. That's such a good idea. You once worked as a journalist in Ethiopia. I did. But this was, again, this was not like at, a, at an advanced level. This was literally, I was just out of a university and I worked with the African Development Forum's daily newspaper. And I was almost like a glorified intern who wrote one or two articles. But it was it was just like one of the first things I did. Whereabouts were you in Ethiopia? I was in Addis Ababa. And it was while the African Development Forum was about AIDS. and But there were some fascinating things which happened. Like I interviewed a, a, a traditional healer. They call them witch doctors, but that's a, actually a derogatory term for them. So you just call them a, a, a traditional hero or sangoma or something like that. But I, what I remember was the reason I spoke to them was that AIDS, telling people in rural areas about, you know, safe sex and stuff like that is very hard because talking about sex is taboo. But they are familiar with their traditional healers talking about that because that's who you go to if you're having something. And so they were trying to get the traditional healers to pass on the information. But for years, they'd been calling them crackpots and fakes. So one of these guys came to the newspaper 
and he'd written a letter he wanted published, which was all about how you need us now, but you call us fakes. But it was written in very bad English. So I was like, oh, okay, great. Yeah, this is good. And I started fixing it. And he got so offended because he felt I was changing his words. And oh, and he, I was trying to persuade him, I'm trying to help you. And he was like, you're a small child. How can I be helping him? Oh, it was this horrible thing. But And so it was never published, but I still always will remember that, man. There's nothing better than an angry spiritual healer. He could have cursed me. <laughs> cursed me. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, I come from a place, my dad comes from the Fiji Islands, although he's an Indian Fijian, and they have a lot of faith healers yes. and spiritual healers there. And I remember stories he said, well, there's ridiculous stories about people walking through graveyards. I think even my great grandfather was known to decapitate corpses and shrink their skulls. <laughs> yeah, but I think the thing or rumored is, to, should I say No, but I think the thing is you have to just realize it's their faith. Because my girlfriend's South African, right? And often she will say stuff and have beliefs that I consider ridiculous. But I realize I just have to respect them because I have some crackpot beliefs too. And it's just one of those things where, you know, she's going to a ritual because there's a child, a new child born to the family and they're going to slaughter a goat. And then she's going to have to wear some of the goat skin uh, until it falls off. And I started mocking this and she got very upset. But I realized that's just like, hey, Catholics eat the bread of... And it's the body of Christ. But to me, since it's not what I grew up with, it seems absurd. It's always the goats that get it. In Fiji, yeah, it's the go goats. Where the poor, what's, goats. What have the poor goats done wrong? I know the it's chickens the have better representatives. There's no chicken. <laughs> well, but the first time I went to Fiji, it was Christmas. And everyone had a little goat tethered up outside their house because they were going to slaughter that on Christmas Day. But, you know, to be fair, that's probably a little bit... I don't think it was a sacrificial slaughter. At least they're going to eat it. And, you know, in this country, we eat meat and we don't look at the slaughter. So it's probably like the best thing to do yes. is tether yes. up. If you're going to have a turkey at Christmas or a cow or whatever, tether it up outside your house, kill it yourself. Yeah. It's probably and a then, better and option. Then, yeah, exactly. And then you know where it came from. Exactly. Yeah. Talking on the similar subject of, yeah. of the spiritual healers, when you went back to Malawi, I read that you were threatened with imprisonment yes. in 2012 because you yes. lampooned the then president uh, for blaming all Malawi's problems on Satan. Yes. So essentially he made a speech and he said, Satan is on our backs. And of course, I knew it was a metaphor saying that, you know, life is hard, but it was funnier for humor for me to take it literally and then start suggesting a ministry of exorcism and so on and so forth. And so I did this long routine about it. And that joke and another joke I did, which was criticizing, making fun of the fact that the, the country, they changed the flag as though that does anything while, you know, there were actual problems in the country. Between those, I got the censorship board of Malawi very angry with me and they called and threatened. And uh, at the end of the day, all that happened was we paid a fine. But there was a two-day period where there was a lot of possibilities, and that was very, very worrying. And um, my dad, also because my dad's political, he got in trouble. And that was actually what was worried me more, because I can get myself in trouble. I'm the one who said it. But then when they start yelling at him because he can't control his son, then it's a different thing when your words have implicated somebody else. Have you ever felt sort of vulnerable in any other place when you're troubled? Being a comedian, you get a lot of threats. I mean, like, Britain's got talent. I got all sorts of that's the most absurd angry messages i got because people are not sane when it comes to reality shows and let's say they're a big fan of person x and they get booted out and then you get through 
they will send you on Facebook and Twitter like abuse and I hope you die and just but I'm older now I'm in my 30s I think when I was in my 20s this sort of stuff would affect me now I just make a joke about it it doesn't really it's sometimes surprising but it doesn't really bother me and so everything from uh, you know people who don't think you're funny and yell abuse you know I'll do jokes which get under people's skin in Zimbabwe I made fun of one of their prophets and a lot of his followers were yelling at me but I don't ever take none of these are serious people I don't feel any of these are the if someone ever cuts out letters and sticks them on a letter I'll I'll be afraid of this person but someone on Twitter that's not a serious threat they're just somewhere where they're like oh someone will read this ah! and they just yell out right this stuff where I'm like I'm not even sure it's their truth it's just their inner rage and they're being hurtful or ridiculous in that moment. Uh, tell me about your current tour. Oh, my current tour, yes. So my current tour, it's lovely because it's the tour that keeps on growing. It was 20 days, now it's 80 dates total. It's been across the UK and I've gone to cities which I didn't even know existed. I've gone to little places like Neath, the uh, Lake District. It's been wonderful performing my show to people who would never see it. And it's just been lovely. It's all I ever wanted, I actually realized. You know, some people, you know, they're like, what are you trying to work towards? Do you want a TV show or something? And I realized I just want to tour and keep touring. So it's lovely. Is it what the African said? What the African said. And actually, interestingly, it's based on people's feedback on my Britain's Got Talent thing. What people say, can you believe what the African said? He's so offensive. He's so non-PC. And then also people sending me hate mail. And then I wrote a show thinking about, well, am I? And what is actually acceptable to say? And then I, I, yeah, sort of analyzed all the people who got in trouble for saying things. Because, again, I'm not one of these people who feels you can say anything because some people are actually toxic. But then how do we differentiate from that person from someone who's just a bit funny? Tell me, uh, tell me something from the show. So I did Britain's Got Talent. And a lot of people say, well, you're, you're African. Why didn't you do an African reality show? But, you know, I wanted my number one choice would have been Zimbabwe's Got Talent. But then I found out no matter how many people voted, Robert Mugabe always won. so that's sort of that's the sort of humor oh that's brilliant so my last question is always about music because i always think that music and travel go hand in hand because we've got more time to listen to it because it helps cement beautiful memories or Mm -hmm. not so beautiful memories so i'm going to ask you to choose one song that reminds you of a place or time in travel it doesn't have to be your favorite band doesn't have to be a great moment just has to be a very very memorable moment and then describe that moment okay francia reflections And that is a song which the first time I was in performing a big show in Malawi. And this was a very big thing for me because, you see, my parents hear about me performing, kind of thought I was crazy, but they'd never seen it. So I did a show in Malawi knowing I would make barely any money because of the exchange rate. But it was this lovely event where I was performing in my home country and we were trying to choose what track I would walk on to. And Francia Reflections was one which I really loved. And I was like, that one, that's the one, that's the one. And I remember it coming on and me walking on stage. And that, yeah, that that song will always have a a place in my heart. It's a wonderful, wonderful moment. Thank you so much for listening to the Big Travel Podcast. We have a new episode out every Tuesday. I have some brilliant guests lined up for you. You don't want to miss them. So subscribe now on whatever app you're using and do leave us a review as well if you can. See you next Tuesday.
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.